Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how one historically black college is working to end modern-day slavery. We're talking about forced labor, where people are in situations they can't really get out of. In the United States, it's greatly prostitution. A lot of it's child prostitution. But it goes beyond that. Farm workers who are enslaved uh, in remote areas, like uh, the Immokali workers in Florida. Then, opioid addiction in Mississippi, the first of a three-part series. Later, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on growing up on a sharecropping farm. And the University of Southern Mississippi sends research vessels out to sea. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Officials at one of Mississippi's historically black colleges are hoping a one-of-a-kind academic program will help end human trafficking and exploitation. The new Institute for the Study of Modern-Day Slavery was developed using a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to help analyze and eradicate human exploitation. According to the U.S. State Department, about 18,000 people were trafficked into, or trafficked into the country are trafficked every year. Tugaloo College professor Steve Rosman tells MPB's Paul Boger those individuals are victims of modern-day slavery. Tougaloo is ideal for it because we're built on a former slave plantation and we've addressed, uh, we were a center for the struggle against, uh, against racial segregation to promote human rights. And so here, and our slogan is where history meets the future, so this is perfect to make the, all this connectivity. And uh, Tougaloo is uh, really, this fits within our uh, whole tradition of promoting uh, struggling for social justice. And the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Historians Against Slavery look towards Tougaloo College as the ideal site to be moving this forward. So when you say modern-day slavery, what exactly are you talking about? Well, we're talking about forced labor, where people in situations they can't really get out of, or they're being exploited badly. Uh, in the United States, it's greatly uh, uh, prostitution. A lot of it child prostitution. But it goes beyond that. Farm workers who are enslaved uh, in remote areas, like uh, the Immokali workers in Florida, uh, people who are uh, often foreigners are brought in, uh, documents taken away, and they're working at sweatshops in some of our cities. Uh, domestic uh, slaves, sometimes people brought over by foreign diplomats, and it's kind of and, and they're stuck. They're they're working in a slave labor situation. So it's broadly to encompass forced labor situations that people are stuck in, they can't get out of, often based on threats to themselves or family members. Is it, is it a problem here in Mississippi specifically? It's a problem in Mississippi in that we have, prostitution here is illegal, but a number of uh, women, uh, some underage, are in forced uh, prostitution situations. Mississippi is also a main route for trafficking of uh, prostitutes, often child prostitutes, along I-20 from, and some along I-10, uh, I-20 from Dallas to Atlanta. So it's a problem in every state and to some extent in every country. And uh, here we have a lot of prostitution. A lot of it is where women are forced into this and the pimp keeps them in. They can't get out of it. So, yeah, it's a problem here, definitely. 
So how do you study something like this? How, what will the Institute be in charge of, or what would the Institute do? The Institute will be uh, involved in coordinating activities here. Curriculum development, which, as I mentioned, involves a num- uh, most of our academic disciplines, faculty from them, and it involves uh, outreach, research, so it's sort of a coordinating, clearinghouse uh, it's really a center for coordination of networking out there and also uh, networking with, uh, organ- with other colleges that were mentioned and universities and also networking internationally because I, was, I speak Portuguese along with Spanish and I was in Brazil about a year ago attending a, the annual meeting of their counterpart to Stories Against Slavery, which is academics here, that's academics in Brazil. And I presented what was going to be the Tougaloo model to them and I discussed possibilities Abilities for networking between our two organizations. So, and I'm doing my own project relates to Brazil in comparison of modern-day slavery in U.S. and Brazil. And other, um, we've got one of our faculty is dealing with Bangladesh, and other one with uh, uh, Cambodia. And so uh, we've got this international connection, and uh, we're piecing a number of these things together to deal with different forms of slavery. Because if you look at Brazil, a whole lot of it is uh, people spirited away into the Amazon jungle and try getting out of that. If you're in some remote ranch and you're clearing, clearing timber for cattle ranches and for soybeans. So uh, a number of things that are to, that are to be done. So Tougaloo will essentially be a hub for a lot of these other organizations, a lot of other colleges to really Mm -hmm. kind of delve in and and do some research into Uh maybe how this this slavery takes place or how this Uh this, uh, exploitation occurs and what can be done about it. Right. Yeah, Tougaloo will be playing that role. See, see, it's caught on uh, in some areas of the country. uh, The the programs have developed and uh, student groups and whatnot. It hasn't developed as rapidly as historically black colleges and universities. And Tougaloo, Mellon sees us as positioning ourselves, bringing in right from the get-go, in the grant itself, Morehouse and Bennett Colleges, and expanding beyond that. So uh, basically, we have that mandate to promote it, expand it, and lead other historically black colleges and universities. Also be a leader within the state of Mississippi in coordinating things with different groups, because there are a number of uh, nonprofit organizations Public agencies, the governor's task force uh, against uh, uh, human trafficking. So uh, we've we've sent out feelers. We've connected with some of them. They want to work with us. So we're going to be a major player here. And it's not just a purely intellectual exercise. A lot of grants are intellectual, and kind of it's great. And you get publications, and you relate to other in- people on an intellectual level. This is taking classroom knowledge and skills into activity, working. Uh, as the historians against slavery, their motto is using history to make slavery history. And we're tied in with that. Our goal is to promote an awareness and help with activity to ferret that out. MPB's Paul Boger with Tougaloo College Professor Steve Rosman on the school's new Institute for the Study of Modern Day Slavery. Up next, opioid addiction in Mississippi, the first of a three-part series. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The conventions are over, candidates have been nominated, and with less than three months to Election Day. You don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but we'll be here to help you understand it. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. For the elderly, a hospital can be a scary and dangerous place. The older you are, the worse the hospital is for you. 
knowing that doctors are prescribing a solution. We do try to make things a little more homelike as much as one can in a hospital. I'm Ari Shapiro, acute care for elders, later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is in the midst of an opioid epidemic that mirrors the nation's struggle with prescription pain pills and heroin abuse. In the first of a three-part series, MPB's Desiree Frazier reports on opioids in Mississippi, the silent epidemic. As soon as I took it and it hit me, it was just, yeah, I fell in love instantly. 38-year-old Steve is a recovering opioid addict. We're not using his real name. The former Mississippi narcotics police officer recalls the first time he took Percocet, a prescription pain pill a friend gave him. He was 17. Uh, I would say it's like when it's really cold outside and someone gives you a blanket that's been inside and it's just warm and it just embraces you. It's just that feeling of bliss. A feeling that masks Steve's insecurities. He struggled emotionally, partly because of his dad, an HIV drug user and dealer who was in and out of prison. His parents divorced, and he longed for a father figure. Steve became addicted to Dilaudid, an opioid pain pill, and developed a 20-pill-a-day habit. At about $16 per tablet, it became too expensive. He turned to heroin for a cheaper, more intense high. It seems like it makes it easier to deal with problems um, because you don't care. You just don't care. Uh, You know, someone could drop dead in front of you, and it's like, oh, they're dead, Uh, We need to call the police. Mark Stovall oversees the Bureau of Alcohol and Drug Services at the State Department of Mental Health. He says opioid abuse crosses all ages, races, education, and income levels. Probably in 2014, which was some of the most current information I have, we've seen about a 5.1% increase in the usage of opioids, especially heroin use. That's a big problem. I literally expect to see that number triple in my next year's data. Opioids release a powerful surge of dopamine in the brain that creates a sense of euphoria. Even those who take the medication as prescribed can become addicted. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention call opioid abuse the nation's number one health problem. Americans consume 95% of the world's hydrocodone, the most widely prescribed opioid. And four out of five new heroin users first took the prescription drugs. Mark Stovall. We're seeing much more of the use of heroin, especially in the northern parts and southern parts of the state. Wherever states touch, you're going to have a lot of heroin that's coming across that borderline. The Mississippi Pharmacy Board reports last year, doctors wrote nearly 8 million prescriptions for narcotics. Prescriptions with hydrocodone as the active ingredient numbered just under 2 million. Also last year, 108 Mississippians died from opioid abuse, according to the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. Veterans are also at risk of addiction. David Walker with the VA Medical Center in Jackson says troops were given opioids for pain while in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we do know that sometimes up to 50 percent of patients coming back may struggle. What percentage out there are actually addicted, I don't know. Not all veterans actually get their care in our system. Walker says those prescribed opioids through the medical center are closely monitored. Dr. Daniel Edney, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, says often people take more than the prescribed dose. The drugs have a sedative effect, 
and when mixed with alcohol, can be deadly. The sedative effect causes patients to get sleepy, sedated, go to sleep, and it also depresses their respiratory drive. So while they're asleep, they just stop breathing. The association is re-educating doctors about opioids and alternatives to managing pain, like therapy, non-addictive medicines, and chiropractic care. Putting people in jail won't solve this crisis, according to Sam Owens, director of the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. He says people get opioids from family, friends, forge prescriptions, and doctor shopping. Criminals feel the demand, too. You know, we've seen a rash of, uh, of drugstore burglaries and robberies and, and attempt, attempted burglaries over the last, you know, three or four years, and those, those numbers are up. Healthcare professionals licensed by the Drug Enforcement Agency to prescribe narcotics must be registered with the Mississippi Pharmacy Board's Prescription Monitoring Program. They don't have to use it. But more than 12,000 prescribers and pharmacists are recording prescriptions in the electronic system. Dana Crenshaw is the director. It's utilized from an addiction perspective. It's utilized from a doctor shopper perspective. But most importantly, it is utilized for the practitioners to make an executive decision on whether or not to fill a prescription or write a prescription. Crenshaw urges doctors not to just cut patients off, but help them get treatment. Mark Stovall with the Bureau of Alcohol and Drug Services. There's a lot of uh, neuroimaging uh, and studies that are out there that show that this is a disease. It's not just somebody who's bad. Steve, the former police officer we talked to, stayed clean for 11 years by going cold turkey and attending 12-step recovery meetings. He relapsed while working narcotics, resigned, and went into treatment. He hasn't used in eight months. As much as I would like to, I, I can't. I can't go back and not be a drug addict. I can't go back and mend those relationships that I destroyed. But what I can do is be a positive example from here forward. And, you know, maybe by the grace of God, I can help the next person that was just like me. Steve says educating Mississippians about opioids and treatment will save lives. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. Stay tuned tomorrow for the second in our three-part series, Opioids in Mississippi, the Silent Epidemic. You'll hear about the biology of opioid addiction and its treatment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio is your voice for Mississippi. If you or your community has an event coming up and you'd like help spreading the word, send us an email You've got mail. to PSA at mpbonline.org. Decker Mountain Radio Hour is on the road to Tupelo, Mississippi, Saturday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. at the Link Concert Center. We'll have author Richard Grant, bluesman Sam Mosley, and rock and roll from the Kit Thorne Band. This show is free and open to the public. The Thacker Mountain Radio Hour in Tupelo at the Link Center, Saturday, August 13th at 7.30 p.m. More information at ThackerMountain.com. Here comes Jim D. Clementine Cooper grew up on a farm in the Mississippi Delta near the small town of Leland. She was part of a sharecropping family. On this visit to the StoryCorps mobile booth in Jackson, Cooper talks about what that childhood was like and what her family did to get by. The sharecropping experience right outside of Leland, the sharecropping farm, had a shanty shack on it, what you see in in movies and whatnot and in books. Everybody primarily knows the shanty shack is like one huge room. Uh, wood-burning heater at that time and things of that nature. 
he worked very hard to chop the cotton and and to pick the cotton and to harvest the cotton and all of that. We stayed at my, my grandmother's house in Leland, in the city, when we first got there. In those days, the children were allowed to sit among the elders sometimes, mostly in the evening time, and these were the storytelling times. My favorite story that my mother would tell us was about the 1927 flood when the levee broke in Greenville, Mississippi, and flooded the whole area, the Delta area there. She talked about the winds and rains and how they mounted up, and and after the levee broke, she talked about the bodies of animal and human bodies that flowed and floated down these floodwaters that even passed by their house and how they were taken to some Indian mounds because that was high land. It would just be so wonderful to hear that story, but it kind of make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, and you you could see it, you could visualize what Mother was telling you in that and consequently, in that, it made her afraid of storms mm-hmm. um, as a young child. She was seven years old when the 27th flood very occurred. The Delta ha- held very wonderful memories. The sharecropping experience was not so good. But out of those experiences of the sharecropping, we had family gatherings and we would go to town to my grandmother's house on Friday, stay Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, walk to town. Leland was a very small town. And we would walk to town with mom and daddy and all the relatives. And you could hear the juke joint music playing and you could smell the fish frying and the chicken and everybody was having big fun. It was a time of closeness with most people because everybody had the same sort of economic background. There was a lot of poverty, but it was a lot of joy and spirit of giving during those times because whatever family had, they shared with each other. When they had hog killing time, when they had harvesting time of the vegetables and whatnot. And I remember sitting on my grandmother and great-grandmother's porch because my grandmother, great-grandmother, great-aunt, all of them lived together. Families lived together at that time and took care of the elders as well as the elders giving them wise counsel and living until death with their family members. But I remember sitting on the porch and we would have bushels of peas to shell and bushels of corn to shuck. The ladies would be in the kitchen canning all of the wonderful preserves and vegetables and soup stocks and things last during the winter, so they were stocking up for the winter. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. Join me each Tuesday for Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. Each week we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental obstacles to family interaction, from depression to handling life's disruptions, discovering things that make you happy, or how to get around things keeping you from your happiness. I want to hear what's going on in your life. Relatively Speaking, part of the Daily Southern Remedy series, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Scientists at the University of Southern Mississippi say two new vessels are expanding researchers' ability to explore the Gulf of Mexico. Monty Graham is director of USM School of Ocean Science and Technology. He tells MPB's Evelina Burnett the ships combined to give the school scientists all the access they need to conduct research on the Gulf of Mexico. So USM has a, you know, a, a modest fleet of three vessels, research vessels. Um, the Point Sur is, is an oceanographic research vessel. It's the largest of the fleet. We also have the Tommy Monroe that's over at Point Cadet. Um, it's a fisheries research vessel. And then the Jim Franks, our newest addition, is a small coastal research vessel that is very utilitarian, fast. It gets people out. It, it's it's a, just a very strong, strong addition to the fleet. And all of these vessels are pretty, well, except for the Tommy Monroe, I guess, are, are pretty, re- or the two are pretty recent within the last two years. What has it allowed USM to be able to do in terms of research and specifically oil spill research? So there's two aspects of this. You know, we're a research university and we have to look at both of those parts, both the research and the, and the academic side. This allows us to have access to a research vessel that pretty, this vessel can pretty much go anywhere. Um, in fact, the, the hull is ice hardens, and it's actually been to Antarctica. So if somebody really wanted to go to Antarctica, they could. Um, but we can cover anything in the Gulf of Mexico, southeast U.S., Caribbean um, very nicely. The Jim Franks is a vessel that can go out on, on just a few day trips. Um, and it'll stay fairly close to shore, but it will, it will work hard and get people out there fast. This brings um, an asset to our programs that we haven't had. We, we have not been training our oceanographers to do oceanography in the sense of getting wet. And, and these vessels really do that. They get our students offshore. They give them opportunities to, to do things. And it sets this university apart from, from most other um, programs. In terms of oil spill research in particular, what opportunities do the boats have? And, and how important is it right now in terms of like uh, what USM is doing and just in general in terms of spill research? I guess we're about six years from the spill. Right. So you can imagine that, that much of the research dollars funding that comes into the to the um, Gulf of Mexico is for oil spill related research. Um, you know, research funding and oceanography elsewhere in the country is is really pretty pretty low. Um, so this is the hot spot to do um, real cutting edge research. So this vessel, um, in the first year that we got it, um, put 110 paid days of research on the books. Compare that to this vessel operating in, in Monterey Bay, where it came from, only had about 50 days a year. So the demand is extreme for this kind of asset here in the Gulf of Mexico. And in fact, we're really only we're one of only two good oceanographic-grade research vessels that the Gulf of Mexico has that, that, um, that stay in the Gulf of Mexico. The vessels that we have and the research that we do in one way or another are tied back to the people of this country, the people of the region, people of the state. And so it's important to showcase this vessel to the public and also to our, our legislators, whether it's our D.C. delegation or our, our delegation from the coast here um, that, that helps us in, in Jackson. Um, so, you know, our ability to, to hold this vessel up really is the cornerstone for our new School of Ocean Science and Technology. It's very visible. It's right here in Gulfport when it's in. And, um, and so people can see it. It's tangible. And we want to remind people that their investments, their tax dollars are being used in very valuable ways to support, you know, the research needs 
post-oil spill and moving forward in the Gulf of Mexico oceanographic science. MPB's Evelina Burnett with Monty Graham of USM on the school's research vessels. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, in legal terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show, there are several ways you can listen. On our website, mpbonline.org, through the MPB Multimedia app, or search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. You can subscribe to the show right there. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. Details at education.olemiss.edu. It's Marketplace Tech for Tuesday the 9th. I'm Ben Johnson in New York.